The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I, I believe that we all share a belief that significant reform is needed at the FBI. I believe we all share a belief that DOJ should conduct annual compliance reviews at its field offices. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 16th, 2023. On September 28th, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, or PCLOB, issued its long-awaited report on FISA Section 702, a surveillance authority that is set to expire on December 31st if it is not reauthorized by Congress. The report was supported by only three members of the board, with the two minority members issuing their own separate statement. The 2-3 split was along party lines. I sat down with four members of the PCLOB, the chair, Sharon Bradford Franklin, and board members Travis LeBlanc, Beth Williams, and Richard DeZinno. Board member Ed Felton could not join us due to medical reasons. In this first of two episodes, we talk about the areas on which the members substantially agree, the compliance problems that have plagued the FBI, and each side's different recommendations for how to address those compliance problems. In tomorrow's podcast, we talk about the members' views on the privacy and civil liberties risks posed by Section 702, and each side's differing recommendations for how to address these issues, with a special focus on the recommendation that is the most serious point of contention among the two sides. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 16th. Part one of the PCLOB on FISA Section 702. I want to start by acknowledging up front that we essentially have two reports, one issued by the chair, Sharon Bradford Franklin, and board members Ed Felton and Travis LeBlanc, which I'll call the majority report, and the other, which is technically a separate statement from board members Beth Williams and Richard DeZeno. There is also an additional separate statement from the chair, although she has endorsed the majority's report in its entirety. And while there is significant disagreement between these documents, there are a lot of things upon which the two sides agree. And I want to talk about where you do agree. Uh, But before that, I think it's useful if we start with some basic understanding about what FISA Section 702 authorizes. So I'm going to pull some language from the majority report and just confirm that that you all agree that this is a a good basic description of, of the authority. 
Section 702 statutorily authorizes the government to target non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be located outside of the United States in order to collect foreign intelligence information using the compelled assistance of U.S. electronic communication service providers. Although the government may use Section 702 only to target non-U.S. persons, communications of U.S. persons or information concerning them may be incidentally collected when a lawfully targeted non-U.S. person communicates with or talks about a U.S. person. And since the enactment of Section 702, the intelligence community has stated that it cannot provide metrics to identify the amount of incidentally collected U.S. person information under Section 702. Now, under the statute, the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence make annual certifications authorizing the targeting of non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be located outside of the United States to acquire foreign intelligence information without specifying to the FISC the particular non-U.S. persons who will be targeted. And while individual targets are not submitted to the FISC or any other judicial authority for review, Section 702 certifications must contain targeting procedures approved by the Attorney General that must be reasonably designed to ensure that any Section 702 acquisition is limited to targeting non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be located outside of the United States and to prevent the intentional acquisition of wholly domestic communications. Section 702 requires that certifications also include minimization procedures that control the acquisition, retention, and dissemination of any non-publicly available U.S. person information acquired through the Section 702 program. Finally, certifications also include querying procedures. So th- that's a mouthful, but but in in that description, we've gotten the terms targeting, minimization, and querying, which are, I, I assume you all agree, three key concepts for understanding FISA Section 702. And because I know we're going to talk a lot about querying, let me give some definitional language about what we mean by querying. Agencies conduct queries to search through unminimized data that has already been lawfully collected and identify pertinent information. Hence, a query does not cause the government to obtain any new communications. Queries are thus similar to an internet search, in this case, searching 702 data repositories to identify and return records that include a match to the query terms used. For example, email addresses, phone numbers, names, or other terms relating to the subject of an analyst's investigation. And pursuant to the agency's querying procedures, queries must be reasonably likely to retrieve foreign intelligence information, or in the case of the FBI, may alternatively be reasonably likely to retrieve evidence of a crime. And in order to satisfy this query standards, queries must be conducted for the purpose of retrieving foreign intelligence information 
or in the case of the FBI, alternatively, evidence of a crime, be reasonably tailored so that they retrieve the information sought and limit the retrieval of unnecessary or irrelevant information and be supported by a proper justification, i.e., the facts indicate that the information sought is reasonably likely to be contained in the agency's Section 702 collection. And while the government is restricted from targeting U.S. persons, agency procedures permit querying Section 702 collection using terms that identify one or more U.S. persons. The same query standard applies to both U.S. person queries and non-U.S. person queries. However, there are specific reporting and approval requirements for U.S. person queries. Okay, any disagreement over that description? Thank you very much, Stephanie, for having us uh, here. Um, we're all delighted to be with you and have the chance to um, speak about the, the board's report. I don't have any concerns with the summary um, that you have provided of the 702 program, but I would take issue with the characterization of the 702 report as two reports. We are the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Uh, yes, we are a bipartisan five-member board, but the board speaks through the majority, whoever that majority is. In this case, there is one report. It is the board's report, and there are separate statements. We are not the Supreme Court of Intelligence Oversight, where we have majority opinions and dissents. We are a board that has historically always had the opportunity for any person to have a separate statement. In this case, it shows exactly that, where you have separate statements from three members, actually the majority of the board, uh, one of whom is the chair of the board. And I think if we were to sever the separate statements of uh, Rich and Beth and set it off as its own separate document, it would not stand as a report. You'd still need the factual section. And I think it's really important to note, we agree largely on the facts, you know, around what this program is. That That's, you know, probably 100 pages of the report right there is is fair. There are areas where we disagree. And, and there are areas that are discussed in the separate statements that have nothing to do with 702, but they are broader issues that uh, are important to members of the board. So while I completely agree that we have separate statements, I don't think it's fair to characterize it as two separate reports. And I also don't think it's fair to characterize one as the majority report and one as a minority report when there is really only one report from the board and the board speaks uh, through the majority. Can I respond, Stephanie? Thank you. And thank you again for having us here today. We're delighted to be here. I take issue with uh, Travis's characterization. What we endeavored to do, and, and by the way, while there was obvious significant disagreement among the majority and the minority, I don't think it's appropriate for us to get into the the details of, of that back and forth, um, primarily because that deals with our deliberative process and we believe strongly in keeping that private and, and their privileges associated with that. But it is important to note that we worked really, really hard uh, for many, many months to try and achieve a consensus. That didn't happen, unfortunately. And the majority decided to write its, its own majority report. 
With the limited remaining time that Beth and I had, we felt it necessary to undertake our own assessment and analysis. Now, we didn't have a year to compile a separate fact section. We had some uh, significant areas of agreement on how the facts were set forward. We have really strong differences of opinion, good faith differences of opinion that we we shared with one another during our, our process, but really significant differences of opinion on how the program should be analyzed and what the appropriate responses to that analysis was. And so we do see our separate statement as a, a, a an additional report that has a separate approach that analyzes uh, the issues and concerns in a much different way, we think a more, a more prudent way that's consistent with our charter. And we felt that we came up with alternative recommendations that meet those concerns that we identified. So we do see it as a as a second report and something that policymakers should really consider as they're uh, thinking through um, their approach to address reauthorization in the coming months. I uh, also want to join in thanking you for having us here and providing us with this opportunity to engage in this very important conversation as a uh, the lead into Congress's consideration of reauthorization of Section 702. We definitely have areas of disagreement, and we'll talk about those. I do want to say one thing, though, specifically to add to what my colleagues have already said about the factual narrative, which is over 130 pages of the report. I think it's very important to recognize that we went through a very lengthy process of accuracy and classification review with the intelligence agencies and the Justice Department with regard to all the facts stated in the report, in the factual narrative, and, and sprinkled throughout the rest of the report. And we're grateful to the intelligence agencies and the Justice Department for working with us through that process. Um, but I think it's very important to recognize that all those facts have been extensively vet vetted and verified through that process. And I think that is one of the values that this report will provide to Congress is providing that comprehensive and authoritative description of how the program actually works as a factual matter. And yes, we definitely have areas of significant disagreement in how we analyze those, the how we make the assessments of risks involved. And, and I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about that today. But I do want to be very clear that all those factual statements have been vetted and verified. Yes. I, I want to echo my colleagues' thanks to you and to Lawfare. Lawfare provides a great service, a great public service, and we're all happy to be on here. Um, just to just on the factual narrative, I think it's important to underscore, and, and I think you, you did this at the beginning, that this is very much a 3-2 report. So we, uh, Rich and I, did not sign on to any part of the report, including the factual analysis. Um, and so, yes, we're very grateful to the intelligence community for going through it, but we have not independently verified that part. All right. So let's move on to some potential points of agreement. Is it fair to say that you all agree that the Section 702 program has been highly valuable in protecting the United States from a wide range of foreign threats, including terrorist attacks in the United States and abroad, cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, and both conventional and cyber threats posed by the People's Republic of China, Russia, Iran, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea? Yes. 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 
hearing no disagreement, do you all agree that Section 702 offers unique collection capabilities that would be difficult, if not impossible, in some circumstances to replicate? Yes. Yes. Do you all agree that the U.S. is much safer with than without Section 702? Yes. Yes. Do you all agree that Section 702 poses significant privacy and civil liberties risks? No. No. Yes. Okay. So we have a point of of disagreement. As I understand, Beth and Rich, you do not believe or agree that Section 702 poses significant privacy and civil liberties risks? Correct. Correct. Okay. What I'd like to do is come back to that, if if we could. Do you all agree that FISA Section 702 should be reauthorized? Yes. yes. With qualifications, I would not support a clean reauthorization. I don't want it to lapse, but I think that significant changes, um, meaningful reform is necessary. But I think n- none of us wants it to lapse. We would all support reauthorization. You would all support reauthorization. I, I, I am of the same view as Sharon, and which is that uh, I would support reauthorization with substantial reform, including a requirement that uh, the U.S. government obtain a prior court authorization from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court before conducting – before reviewing the contents of U.S. person queries. So are there any – what I will characterize as broad or significant points of agreement that I have missed? Well, I think we have all said that we believe significant reforms are necessary. I will, I will start to put some out for consideration and people can chime in and say no. I believe that we all believe that privacy risks and misuse of intelligence authorities are real and must be guarded against. I'm sorry, what do you mean? Privacy risks are real? Yes, privacy risks and misuse of intelligence authorities are real and must be guarded against. Yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, the question is, what is are real? I think there could be with any program, there could be misuse and those have to be guarded against. And so if that's, if that's what you're saying, then yes, there, there could be and those have to be guarded against. Yeah, I was actually just reading a quote from your statement. Okay where you said that. Yeah. Um, I believe that we all um, share concern over the number of U.S. person query compliance incidents. Yes. Yes. I believe we also all share a concern over the lack of F2 orders that DOJ has never gotten. Yeah, that's a concern. So we're going to need to come back and unpack what an F2 order is. Yes. I, I believe that... We all share a belief that significant reform is needed at the FBI. Yes. yes. I believe we all share a belief that DOJ should conduct annual compliance reviews at its field offices. Yes. Yes. Those are the ones that I think I, I, I would I would add though that I think because of the way the report and the separate statements were written that there may be additional areas of agreement that just weren't discussed in the board's report that were mentioned in the separate statements where we we might also have some agreement in the sense that there are probably parts, if not uh, substantial parts of some of the recommendations that we wouldn't disagree with or that I wouldn't disagree with. I wouldn't necessarily consider them 
sufficient. And there are others that I, you know, maybe wouldn't have put in, in, I wouldn't have been in favor of putting in the report simply because they're not tailored to 702. And I think that this is not a report on every foreign intelligence program out there. It's really tailored to 702. But it's not to say they're, the recommendations themselves would get disagreement. It's just, you know, you got a 297 page report already. How much, you know, how, how much longer could it be? And I so, would add one more. I think that we all agree that American lives are at stake if this is not reauthorized. I think we would all agree with that given the briefings and the intelligence that we've seen. And, and I would just add, obviously, agree with the points that Travis made. I think, you know, part of where we ended up is informed by the separate policy analysis. And again, I think Beth and I really significantly disagree with how the analysis was performed and in, in, in some of the some of the points made uh, in the majority's analysis. And so that eventually leads to different conclusions. And so that's really important to understand that, you know, it's starting with understanding how we approach looking at risks and how those risks are mitigated and contextualized and comparing risk to value. And, and Rich, it, that's exactly why what you're saying, right, is exactly why I wanted to make the comment about the report itself, because I really see the separate statement as a separate policy analysis fundamentally and recommendations that come from that as opposed to an entirely separate document that stands on its own by itself. Yeah. And I would just caveat that with, you know, again, we didn't sign on to any piece of the report. It's a fully 3-2 report. And part of that is because it's important how the facts are presented, too. You you want the facts to be, you know, uh, presented in as um, neutral and helpful a way as possible. And we ultimately, you know, didn't didn't sign on to any piece of the report. But I agree with, with Rich and Travis that a lot of the disagreements stemmed from the policy analysis and recommendations. I guess I would add to this that with regard to different policy analysis and different recommendations, there are clearly some common themes and the difference is in how we do weigh the risks and benefits and the particular reforms that we call for. So Obviously, there's a lot of focus, as there has been in the public debate and among members of Congress already, on the FBI. Um, there is common recognition that the FBI has made some important improvements over the past two years, but that those are insufficient. And there is a lot of, I think, agreement in some of the particular harms that we see with FBI behavior, including obviously the compliance violations and also particular threats uh, regarding exercise of First Amendment activities and some efforts to improve that with rules on sensitive queries, but that no one thinks are sufficient uh, to reform those concerns. So I did hear the word concerns about compliance incidents mentioned a lot from from all of you. And, and I want to turn to that topic. Both documents spend a lot of time discussing compliance problems and and ultimately making some recommendations. But for the uninitiated into FISA Section 702, I'd like to ask you all, how should we think about the concept of compliance with respect to Section 702? And then what are some of the most uh, significant problems from your perspective? And then, and then we can talk about 
how those issues have or have not been addressed and what reforms that you propose to address them? I can start if, if that's okay. I, I think it's really important to, as you said, contextualize this. And from a, a basic threshold starting point is to look at why do we do this fundamentally? Where does it stem from? It really emanates from the lessons learned from 9-11. We all know, uh, at least uh, folks of our vintage, uh, are familiar with the connect the dots terms and the failure of the intelligence community to put together pieces of information that would have allowed the intelligence community to better predict what happened on 9-11. This program, at a very broad level, has been structured uh, statutorily over time to balance the interest of collecting national security information and to allow the intelligence community to do just that, to collect those dots. One of the important pieces of information is, and, and again, this is a feature and not a bug, if there are individuals in the United States communicating with a foreign target, which is a by definition, someone who is seeking to do harm to the United States, that is an important piece of information to know. And yet it's a, a U.S. person and the Fourth Amendment interests are at their apex with respect to that piece of the program. And so we want to structure a way in which we can both achieve our national security objectives, but also protect uh, that person's Fourth Amendment interests at the same time and circumscribe it in such a way. But it is really, really valuable piece of information and important tool for the entire program. Now, we obviously disagree with respect to how to address that. But in terms of the compliance structures that are in place to uh, circumscribe that authority, which I think we all agree is a very, very sensitive part of, of the program and needs to be uh, circumscribed appropriately. It's unacceptable that the FBI has continuously failed to comply with its own compliance measures. And so, and we can walk through, you know, some of those issues, but, you know, it, it really is important to understand kind of the foundation of the program and the value of that and not lose sight of the fact that that's really important information for the, for protecting our national security. And then let's focus on how we can appropriately set up rules and prescribe uh, a compliance program around that to, to best protect Americans' privacy interests. Yeah. And I think I think Rich is exactly right. It's important to understand the framework before we start delving into the specific problems, because I see this really uh, in, in two lanes. So lane one is collection. How is the intelligence community collecting the information and are they doing it appropriately? Are they targeting the right people or are they targeting Americans either accidentally or, you know, in some other way? And then how are they using the information that is lawfully collected? And and so what seems to be most worrisome, and rightfully so, for Americans is, are they collecting my data 
when they shouldn't be, right? Is the government out there collecting my data? And so that's one of the things we looked at. We looked at collection. So what are they doing? And what the evidence has demonstrated is that the improper collection of Americans' communication is not happening with the Section 702 program. Now, according to the most recently unclassified data, the National Security Agency's targeting compliance rate is 99.85%, and the FBI's is 99.99%. So what does that mean? That means that the government is neither intentionally nor inadvertently targeting Americans for surveillance through 702. So that means they're not making mistakes with collection. That's a big deal. Now, you, we, what one of the things we're going to talk about next is querying. How are they searching the information that they lawfully collect? And that is where there have been some compliance problems, and we need to talk further about it. But I think starting with collection is important so that people understand that the intelligence community, the big worry of 2014, right, in, in the P-Club report of 2014 was, are they, are they using abouts? Are they collecting Americans' information? And I think you need to, you know, one real virtue of our agency is that we can say where there are problems and we can say where there are not problems. And what we're not seeing is problems on the collection side. We're seeing more problems on the querying side. And so I think that's important to understand. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I agree that there have been far, far, far fewer compliance incidents on the targeting side. That is absolutely the case, and that is a good thing. However, I don't think we can say there's no problem with collection of Americans' information, we still don't know the scope of incidental collection. And this is the subject of one of our recommendations. This has been a issue, if I, I can step back a second. From the outset of the program, the intelligence agencies have asserted that they cannot accurately measure the scope of incidental collection, how much of Americans' communications are being collected by virtue of the fact that they are in contact with, in communication with uh, foreign targets. And back in the board's 2014 report, in Recommendation 9, the board urged the NSA to come up with metrics to provide insight into the scope of incidental collection. And ultimately, the NSA adopted two of the five metrics, was planning to uh, work further to develop 
additional different metrics, and ultimately came to the opinion and has testified to this that they cannot develop meaningful metrics in their view. I have a difference of opinion with them on what is a meaningful metric, a metric that still provides insight, even if it is not of the same mathematical accuracy as the other statistics that um, NSA and the other intelligence agencies typically provide. That kind of metric can still, in my view, be meaningful to policymakers. But I think that is an important um, thing to flag, that we still need to know more about the scope of incidental collection when we talk about um, the appropriateness and uh, extent of collection of Americans' information. Turning to compliance specifically, yes, the vast majority of compliance problems have been with regard to querying, and that is uh, an area of focus across um, the report, including in uh, the separate statements. I also want to flag a breakdown there with compliance. I think it's important to focus both on measures that will improve compliance with existing rules. Um, That has been a continuing problem, particularly at FBI, although not exclusively at FBI, but particularly at FBI. And we have some specific recommendations designed to get to that. But even if there were to somehow be perfect compliance with the existing rules, that, in my view, is not sufficient. We also need to raise the bar, to raise the standards on querying. And we've already alluded to this, and I know we're going to get into this conversation more, but uh, that particularly goes to the board's recommendation three on requiring uh, FISA court approval of U.S. person query terms. But that's not the only area where I believe we need to raise the bar. I share uh, all of Sharon's um, assessment of the compliance incidents that have been evaluated and the need to raise the bar on a going forward basis. You know, I, I also agree with Rich that it is a feature, not a bug of the program that uh, some U.S. person communications when they're in contact with foreigners are collected. And we could have architected this program so that those communications were automatically filtered out some kind of way, maybe by the phone number or, you know, by a selector that clearly indicates. But we didn't do that. And I think that in making the decision that it was a feature, it was making the decision that we are going to intentionally collect the communications of U.S. persons as part of the program when they're in contact with a foreigner. But it's intentional. It is not inadvertent. Um, And the scope of it, the number of U.S. persons that are impacted, we don't know. That's what we don't know as of today. We, in the report, have a recommendation that the, um, the intelligence community should explore ways to actually estimate the number of U.S. persons whose communications are incidentally collected as part of the 702 program. I I don't know that Beth and Rich disagree with the idea of attempting to estimate that number. I have a suspicion that we may not have disagreement over that, but it would be an important factor that I think would help us understand uh, the extent to which even though, you know, in, in calendar year 2022, the Section 702 program targeted approximately 246,073 non-U.S. persons located abroad, 
how many of those people were in touch with U.S. persons and how many uh, communications of U.S. persons were incorporated there. That number, even though it's 246,000 number, that is a 276% increase in targets since calendar year 2013. And, and, and then I also just note that as of 2021, NSA acquired approximately 85.3 million internet transactions a year from upstream collections. So the scope of this program is quite substantial. And I hope people do understand that it is, it is a very, very large program. For the compliance incidents, I do share, I think, everyone's probably a a, a view that the most concerning compliance incidents seem to be around U.S. person queries and seem to be focused on on the FBI. But, you know, to give a little bit more flavor for what those compliance incidents do look like, right? In 2021, the government conducted hundreds of non-compliant queries concerning individuals arrested in connection with civil unrest and protests. For example, in 2020, uh, I believe it's in 2020, the FBI personnel in Washington, D.C. conducted 141 queries of identifiers associated with activists who were arrested in connection with protesting the murder of George Floyd in Washington, D.C. between June 3rd and June 5th of 2020, despite the lack of a reason to believe there would be information on these individuals in Section 702 databases. In 2021, thousands of searches were improper and extended to query, U.S. person queries were improper and extended to community leaders, repair people, and even political figures and their staff. One example in 2021, following an audit of an FBI field office, DOJ reported non-compliance batch job query that involved the names of over 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign, most of whom were U.S. persons. So, yes, there have been substantial compliance incidents around U.S. person queries. Those are demonstrated over many years. And these aren't instances that only affect one or two or five or ten people. These can affect one example I just gave you involving, you know, a congressional campaign. 19,000 donors were impacted by the improper querying of Section 702 collections for U.S. persons without any reason to believe that there would be information in the actual database. Can I um, just circle back? And this gets back to the comments that Sharon and Travis made on incidental collection and the the counting of U.S. persons that are captured by incidental collection. So you have a very sophisticated viewership or audience, and I think most know how this operates, but to bring it to a simplistic level, hopefully you can analogize in a criminal uh, surveillance context with a Title III surveillance warrant in a garden variety drug case in, in a criminal investigation. So if the government chooses to surveil a target uh, who's suspected of uh, criminal drug activity, they can do so. And they need to show probable cause in order to conduct that surveillance. Uh, it's a basic tenet of U.S. criminal law and, and authority. Um, there are a lot of uh, mitigation, uh, minimization 
uh, processes that are associated with that. But one of the key features of that surveillance is that uh, if the target is Rich Dezeno, I am by definition talking to another person on the line. And that is incidental collection. And there is no serious debate in criminal law that that incidental collection is not a an appropriate use of government authority under that statutory framework. A little bit different context, obviously, in 702 and, and the, the standards that, that apply here. But the concept is is the same. And, and so the other issue is that we've had a lot of discussions with the IC in trying to determine or, or have them determine uh, what this number is. And I think it's a, a lot more complicated than uh, at first blush. And it actually creates a perverse incentive for the intelligence community to delve into more information about US persons rather than less. In other words, if Rich Dezeno is talking to another party on the line, and I am a, a foreigner who's located abroad, who's the subject of a 702 targeting request, what you're actually <coughs> trying to do then in order to determine who I'm speaking to is develop more information and be more intrusively investigatory uh, or, or develop uh, more investigative information about the person on the other line rather than less. So if there are U.S. person communications that are going on, one, that's a really important piece of information for the government to, to understand. And again, I'm not saying unfettered. That needs to be really, really uh, carefully circumscribed. And we could talk about, about that. But two, if we don't know who that person is, do we really want the government conducting sort of a side investigation to unearth more information about who that person is, again, creating this perverse incentive to to be more privacy invasive towards that person and not less. And if that communication uh, rests sort of alone in the 702 database, that information is never, it, it's never discovered anyway. Yeah, just to to respond, because I know we're looking for areas of agreement, and there's actually another important area of agreement that I think we, hasn't come up yet, which is that um, we all agree this is that seven, Section 702 is not bulk collection. That's something that the board said in 2014. That's something that the majority said again, uh, just you know, just just last month when it came out, and that's that's important because the bulk collection gets thrown around, and the board has you know I think unanimously agreed now twice that it's not bulk collection, and just. To to give some context too, because I think we all agree that you know searches that are not reasonably likely to retrieve foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime, which is the standard for the FBI, should not be run. And and Rich and I, you know, spoke at length about that in our separate statement. But when these numbers are getting thrown out, the numbers of queries that have done, it's also important, I think, to to think about well, how many of those queries, whether for you know protests or of, of of other people, actually returned hits. How many of them actually returned any information that anybody ever saw? So if you run a hit, you know, if it's a tree falls in the woods and nobody sees it, if you run a hit and nothing comes up. 
is the privacy invasion as much as if something did come up? And so when you're when you're thinking about this, you know, it's also important to think what is the hit rate? The hit rate is actually very low, uh, especially for U.S. person queries. And the reason for that is because the FBI only has 3.2% of the total data number of targets collected. So if you wanted to run a domestic surveillance you know, uh, operation, 702 would be a really terrible way to do it because you're not getting much information. I'd like to respond to uh, Rich's uh, comments about incidental collection. Three things. First, yes, it is analogous to the situation with a Title III wiretap, but there's a very significant difference, which is with a Title III wiretap, there is individualized judicial review under a probable cause standard, actually even beyond probable cause for some of the minimization uh, rules that are required. And so that makes a huge difference in terms of if your information is incidentally collected, there was that prior individualized judicial review of the target, whereas that is not the case under Section 702. Appropriately not under Section 702 because the targets under Section 702 are foreigners located outside the United States. They're not people with recognized Fourth Amendment rights. So there is not that individualized judicial review at the front end. So I think that's a key significant difference. Second, yes, incidental collection absolutely is legal and expected. I think Travis alluded to that earlier. And in my view, it is an important aspect of the program. We do want the government to be able to discover what people inside the United States are speaking to their targets. That is an important aspect of the ability of this program to help protect us. However, when the government's uh, investigatory gaze turns to focus on those individual U.S. persons whose communications may be uh, found in the 702 databases, that is where uh, we need to have much more robust safeguards, um, in my view, and particularly because of the absence of judicial review at the front end. Um, The third thing I just want to mention in terms of the recommendation for counting Our recommendation actually calls on Congress to require that the intelligence agencies explore some of the methods that have been proposed or other ones that may be developed, including ones that would be entirely privacy protective that would not involve um, uncovering additional information about those U.S. persons whose information may exist in the database. So there are scholars who are exploring that, how to do that in a privacy protective way. So this estimation would help inform policymakers on whether we need even more robust safeguards to protect the vast extent of incidental collection once we have a sense of what that scope actually is. Can I follow up with with one question because Rich and Beth I I clearly hear your disagreement to some recommendation or requirement that a number be produced or estimated with respect to uh the incidental collection of US person information do you think it it is just irrelevant does it offer no insights for anyone about the scope of this program and protections or new compliance ideas that that would come about is that your position yeah just to just to clarify you know if it could theoretically be done in a privacy protective way it i think there's a potential that it could be helpful the problem is all of the evidence that we've seen and been briefed on 
doesn't suggest that that's actually possible. So that's the concern. The concern is, I mean, I think even some of the the studies involved matching private corporations' data against U.S. government data. You know, I, I leave it to the the technical folks to see if that's even possible. But but all of the evidence we've received suggests that there could be operational difficulties, if not impossibilities, with doing it. That's the concern. Yeah, it, it's 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 not irrelevant. Um, I agree. There's uh, that would be helpful information, but I, I agree with how Beth just described it. it. It we need to think carefully about being actually privacy intrusive rather than helpful in terms of generating that information. Yeah. I mean, I will note that it was a unanimous recommendation in the 2014 report to develop a way of estimating incidental collection. That was unanimous. I, I believe that it would be unanimous here too as long as, long as it is privacy protective. Um, I think you would, you would have that as well. I do believe also that this is one of the areas of the conversation that would greatly be benefited by the presence of Ed Felton um, with us. Um, he is our technological expert. The other four of us are lawyers, um, and uh, Ed uh, is the computer scientist. Ed, Ed, Ed represents to me that this is possible uh, to do, and he strongly believes that. Uh, maybe there will be a way for uh, for you to follow up with Ed and offer him an opportunity to speak to this issue as well. So are there any other particular recommendations that you want to highlight that are very specific to these compliance problems? And what I'm interested in getting at is – how bad a problem is this? Is is it something that you all think can be rectified? And is the Bureau and the intelligence community doing enough or do more things need to occur in your view to address these compliance problems? So again, I would reiterate that I think it's important both to improve measures or develop new measures to improve compliance with existing rules and recommendations to raise the bar because that, in my view, it, it goes to a similar problem with what the compliance incidents actually represent. I'll just flag we do have several very specific recommendations on the former on improving compliance processes, including calling out that FBI should strengthen its internal Section 702 compliance processes and supplement its internal auditing. Also recommending that DOJ should annually review each FBI field office's compliance with the Section 702 uh, procedures. I'm not going to go through all of them, but we have another one that FBI should explore methods for the use of secure automated review and machine learning to also assist in auditing and in compliance. So we have a number of specific recommendations that are directed to uh, the intelligence agencies and FBI in particular on how to improve compliance with existing rules. And I do think that those are critically important. Those are not matters, though, that Congress needs to act on. Those are things that the intelligence agencies can do on their own. And I would just flag in terms of um, our recommendations, the CLIPO recommendation. We had a lot of discussion with FBI about, in, 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 in our view, this is as much cultural as it is technical and procedural. I think David Chris said it more eloquently in one of his pieces that, you know, you can put all the procedural and technical requirements in place, but if you don't have a fundamental culture that's devoted to 
incorporating privacy as part of your organic daily life, you will continue to see these compliance issues. And so to us, that really starts with the CLIPO. The chief uh, privacy and and civil liberties officer at the FBI, who's currently uh, reports uh, to the general counsel and elevating that position to be a direct report to, to the director. And then separately to have embedded, because the FBI is a decentralized organization by design because of its operational necessities. But having CLIPOs in each of the field offices that would have, in our view, a dual reporting function to the the SAC, which is the special agent in charge of that field office, and to the uh, the CLIPO at headquarters. And I think, you know, as we thought through this, we thought, first of all, a lot of the compliance incidents, I think, in fact, the vast majority occur in the field offices and not at headquarters. And so there currently exists more of a DOJ oversight function on compliance and DOJ may or may not, in our view, we think they're viewed as sort of an outside police force. Instead of having a colleague in your office who you partner with, instead of who you view as your oversight authority who either gives you a a passing grade or slaps you on the wrist. Instead, it should be more of a partnership that I want to do the right thing. Um, I want to get good advice from my colleague who hopefully I have a personal relationship with. And that would facilitate more of uh, this ingrained culture devoted to, yes, I need to fulfill my mission and to prevent and deter threats, but I need to do it in a way that's that's compliant with all the procedures that, that have been put in place. If I could just do two quick responses. Um, one, agree that it would be beneficial to have uh, more of the compliance internalized at FBI. And our report actually you know, speaks to that, that right now most of the compliance incidents are, are detected by DOJ instead. And uh, so would agree with that suggestion for improvement. But I do want to clarify, FBI's chief civil liberties and privacy officer is already statutorily required to report to the director with the amendment to section 803. So that is, uh, you know, a right. current statutory so that's, requirement. So that's, so Sharon's exactly right. The problem right now is that that person sits in the office of general counsel and has a lot of other responsibilities. One of the things we saw, because we really did a deep dive on this, like where are the problems coming from and how can things be better? And one of the things that we saw was after 2013, NSA, you know, took major, major steps of reform to get their compliance house in order. FBI has been has been trying to, especially in the past couple of years, and has made great improvements, but it's been more of a patchwork. And one of the other things that that we've heard, at least anecdotally, is that because you have this DOJ oversight structure over FBI, it's more of a, there's a chilling effect. Not only are they maybe running queries that they shouldn't be running, they're also not running queries that they should be running. And so we're hoping that if you embed the, the privacy and civil liberties structure kind of throughout in a more, you know, in a way that Rich talked about, where it's maybe it's your colleague down the hall that can double check you, that you'll hopefully alleviate both problems, not have too many queries that you shouldn't be running, but also make sure you're actually running the queries so that you can find the associate of the terrorist abroad. I actually uh, fully agree with the recommendation that 
uh, FBI's uh, civil liberties and privacy officers should report to the director. Um, in fact, uh, I'm on record. In 2021, I wrote an opinion piece in The Hill calling for federal chief privacy officers, and I specifically highlighted the FBI in that opinion piece um, as an agency where the the CLIPO um, is in the general counsel's office, and it's a part-time job for the CLIPO. It's not a full-time job. And, and I also agree with Sharon. It's actually already required by law. It's just it's not done. And FBI is not the only one that's uh, failing to comply uh, with that provision. Uh, DOJ is another one that comes to mind. The CLIPO at DOJ uh, reports to the deputy attorney general, not the attorney general. Under existing law, it ought to report to the attorney general. And frankly, I think across the entire United States government, uh, there should be chief privacy officers and civil liberties and privacy officers at the, the appropriate agencies in every single one. And in every single one, they ought to report to the head of agency. This concludes part one of the podcast. Tune in tomorrow for a continuation of the conversation where we will discuss members' views on the privacy and civil liberties risks posed by Section 702 and each side's differing recommendations for how to address these issues, with a special focus on the recommendation that is the most serious point of contention among the two sides. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 